0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, hear God's word. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that you saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases?" Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. Like Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I'm not going to hold it against you that that good morning was really lame because it is really cold out there. Uh, So thanks for for being here. Hopefully uh, it'll stay warm in here. And as we begin to open God's word this morning and see what he has to say, would you join me in prayer? Dear Father, uh, truly we... We need you to understand what your word says. And that's why we want to, to pray this morning, Lord, before we uh, open your word and examine what it is that you have to say to us through it. I pray, Lord, that uh, it would be you speaking through me this morning, that I would decrease and you would increase. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would walk out of here with a, a deeper understanding of who you are and that that would actually impact the way we live every single day. Amen. Well, I'm a bit embarrassed to admit it. I think I've started maybe one or two sermons this way. I'm making a confession that one of my favorite movies is Dumb and Dumber. Okay, not the new one, right? I'm, I'm the classic, right? The throwback, the original, but I do really, really love that movie. Now, maybe for some of you, you're already gone. I, you're lo- I'm lost on you. But Preaching 101 is that I have to be honest. And so I'm up here this morning, I'm burying my soul, and I'm asking you to stick with me. Uh, one of my favorite scenes in that movie is when Harry and Lloyd, the two main characters, dumb and dumber, realize that Lloyd has taken a wrong turn. They're on the road trip, they're headed to Aspen, Colorado, they were hoping to see the Rockies, and instead they end up in Nebraska. <laughs> There's this great moment where I said, ah, I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a little bit rockier. And and so they finally realize that Lloyd has taken a wrong turn, and this is the exchange that happens. I'm only human, Harry, Lloyd pleads, so we backtracked a tad. A tad, screams Harry, a tad. You drove almost a sixth of the country in the wrong direction. You see, even Harry, as dumb as he was, I think he was dumb, and I think Lloyd was dumber, but even Harry, as dumb as he was, he realized that a road trip is doomed to fail if you're not headed towards your destination. That's the thing about road trips, isn't it? Your final destination necessarily determines the path you take to get there. This is the entire idea behind Google Maps, right? You put in your starting point and your ending point and Google spits out the most efficient and quickest way to get between those two points. But this applies to more than just road trips, doesn't it? This principle is also true of life, I think. I mean, our endpoint should determine the path we take. Let me say it this way where we're headed determines the path we take. Where we're headed determines the path we take. And if you're here this morning and are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that means that you are headed towards an eternity in Jesus' kingdom, experiencing full and complete joy in the presence of God. And that glorious endpoint should have massive implications on the path that we take to get there. Really, it should affect everything. And by everything, I mean everything. The way we discipline our kids. How much time we spend watching TV. Whether or not we cheat in school. What happens between the sheets in our bedrooms. The purchases we make. The purchases we don't make. Where we live. How we argue. And so on. Everything. Where we're headed should determine the path we take. Now, some of you, as I've said this, may have the phrase come to mind, so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that one before? And yeah, to be sure, that criticism has been accurate of far too many Christians in history. And if you're here this morning and and don't claim to be a follower of Jesus, if you're not a Christian, then... I want to apologize for that. That shouldn't be the case. You know, in many ways, the Corinthian Christians who Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to, they had become so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. They thought they had arrived. But, you know, it wasn't even in their case that they were just refusing to do good. It was actually that they were doing a lot of bad things as well. And this is what Paul, starting back in chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians, has begun to address. Uh, Last week in in chapter 5, Bill preached on this. The church was refusing to deal with sin in a very major way. They were actually boasting about a form of sexual immorality that Paul pointed out wouldn't have even been tolerated outside of the church. And the Corinthians, they were saying, look at us. We have so much grace and tolerance and acceptance. And this week in chapter 6, Paul takes the Corinthians to task over the issue of public lawsuits. Members and brothers of the church in Corinth were defrauding and suing one another. Again, this was a church that thought they had arrived. They thought they had made it. And they weren't allowing where they were headed to determine their path. And in these verses, Paul says to them very clearly, the path that you're on isn't actually taking you where you want to go. We're going to continue with the road trip metaphor this morning, and we're going to examine first where they were, the Corinthians being they, where they were. Second, we're going to examine where we're headed And then that will lead us to ask the question, what path should we take? Well, first, we need to take a look at where they, again, the Corinthians were. It was like the Corinthians were Lloyd Christmas. Do you remember that that was his last name? That's just such the perfect last name in Dumb and Dumber. It was like they were Lloyd Christmas. They were a sixth of the country in the wrong direction, driving aimlessly, and they didn't even know it. The Rocky Mountains, I thought they'd be more rockier. They had no idea. We don't know the exact situation behind uh, Paul's admonition of the Corinthians in these verses, but we can actually venture a pretty good guess from how he talks about the situation. The word that Paul uses in verse 7, he says that they were defrauding one another. Mainly that refers to disputes involving property or money. And in verse 1, Paul refers to this as a grievance. It's a word that implies it's an everyday sort of problem. This is a civil case that Paul is addressing here. It's not a criminal one. And that's an important point to remember. In other letters, in particular the letter to the Romans, the church in Rome, Paul speaks very positively about the role of government in maintaining justice and order in our societies. Paul isn't anti-government, or he isn't even anti-litigation It's just that in Corinth there's something deeper going on here and that's what he's trying to get at. So likely what happened is man A defrauded man B out of some money. He ripped him off. And man B understandably is incredibly upset about this. So upset that he takes man A to the civil magistrates, non-Christian judges. He sues him. These magistrates, these non-Christian judges, they were located in the heart of the public square. Everyone is watching these proceedings. Roman society was very litigious, much like ours is today. And the goal of the ancient lawsuit was to prevail over your opponent at all costs. This often, in fact, this most of the time, Included a personal assault on your opponent's character. A public takedown. Can you picture that scene with me? Both man A and man B claimed to be Christians. They were both members of the church in Corinth. They worshipped together. They prayed together. They broke bread together. And now, they're suing one another and are involved in these public takedowns, crafting an argument about how horrible the other person is. It would be like if you turned on Judge Judy, not that I regularly watch Judge Judy, but it would be like if you turned on Judge Judy and saw two members of the Brookside campus just going at one another. It would be shocking, right? How tragic would that be? And did you notice that as Bill read the passage for us this morning, that in the first eight verses here, Paul uses eight questions against only four statements. Eight questions versus only four statements. It's almost like, have you ever had this happen, where something so unbelievable goes down, that you, you can't do anything but just sort of stammer out questions? How, how did you, what, just say what? <laughs> right, I mean, this is, this is the moment when KU won their national title a few years ago and Mario Chalmers hit that shot. And I'm, no, I'm not alone here on this, right? I mean, this is the how did that, what's, you can't do anything but stammer out questions? This is Paul, except that his questions are mixed in with incredible indignation. Incredible indignation. I mean, look back with me at verse one. This is where Paul says, does he, does the man who's suing, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Does he dare? I mean, this isn't a dare like I double dog dare you to do it, right, on the playground. No, this is a dare where Paul is saying, how could you possibly do something like that? like this and Paul's right isn't he I mean what do you think the public perception of the church was after this what do you think the non-Christian judges were thinking as Christian man a took down Christian man B it was no different than any of the other court cases that they presided over There probably was this moment for the non-Christians who were watching this go down. I knew it. Christians are just as selfish and deceitful and greedy as everyone else. There's nothing different. When that's the response of something that we're doing as Christians, it probably means we should stop doing it. Now, it might be tempting for us to dismiss this story I mean, after all, not many of us will be presented with the opportunity to sue another Christian. But we don't get off the hook so easily. Instead, we have to look at and examine what was happening underneath the issue of lawsuits. And I think that Paul's main gripe is that what the Corinthians are doing flies directly in the face of a true gospel community. Lawsuits, by their very nature, breed conflict and division, things that have no place in God's family. And you know what? Conflict and division sound very familiar to me. Maybe I haven't taken another Christian to court, but I've certainly wronged other Christians, caused division been in conflict with other Christians, manipulated them, torn them down, attacked their character for my own gain. I've done those things. And when I've won at doing those things, have I really gained anything at all? No. I've done nothing but tear apart God's family. Eventually, with this situation in Corinth, maybe... Man B, who had been wronged, maybe he won the case. Maybe man A was required to pay back man B plus damages. But did man B really win anything? As one New Testament scholar said of this situation, no matter who won or lost at the lawsuit, all lost spiritually. Isn't that sobering? Remember, where we're headed should determine the path we take. And for the Corinthians, it doesn't seem like that was happening. They had forgotten where they were heading. And really, that begs a great question. Where are we headed? Where were they headed? And where, as Christians seeking to be faithful, where are we headed? we can ask the same question. And Paul tells us, look back with me again, we'll start in verse one at the passage. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous, meaning non-Christians, instead of the saints, meaning Christians? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? Here's the deal. If you believe that this life is all there is, the only place you're heading, then what choice do you have? Of course, you have to protect your rights, your finances, your reputation. You've got to take, you've got to grab. Forget the community, forget the family. If the only place that you're heading is six feet under, then you better do everything you can to squeeze every bit of satisfaction out of the here and now. What choice would you have? But if there is another destination, wouldn't that make a difference? I know for some of you, that's a really big if. There's a lot riding on that little word. That's a big if, I know that. But listen to what Paul just said. If we are following Jesus now, then at the end of time, we will actually participate and partake in the judgment of the world. Now, some of you are probably thinking, aha, I knew it. Christians are fundamentally judgmental. And others of you may be thinking, hey, I was here last week. Didn't Paul say at the end of chapter 5 not to judge outsiders? What's going on here? What's happening? Those are both really great questions. Thanks for asking. You guys ask really good questions. Uh, What is going on here? Well, it is true that Paul, at the end of chapter 5, did uh, say that God judges those who are outside the church. And and the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that back in chapter 5, Paul is talking about the present, the here and now. Right now, I have no place, I have have no role in judging those who don't claim to be Christians, who don't claim Christ, who, who don't say they're following Jesus, and this is why Bill last week made the great point that when it comes to the sin of those who do not claim to be Christians, we ooze grace, right? We, we ooze grace. But that's the here and now. Paul in chapter 6, here, where he says that we will partake in the judgment of the world, he's talking about the final judgment, which is happening in the future. So there's no contradiction between these verses, even though it may seem like it at, at first glance, But that only answers one of our questions. Doesn't this mean that Christians are fundamentally judgmental? Well, yes and no. It's never quite that simple, is it? Throughout the Bible, there is a running tension between passages that prohibit judging and then passages that command it. I mean, even if we just focus in on Jesus' teaching you'll find, which many of you probably know, Matthew 7.1, which is, judge not that you be not judged. Right? It's, a, it's become a, a very popular verse in our culture in time today. But what doesn't get as much play is John 7.42, where Jesus says this in his teaching. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Bible condemns what we might label as a spirit of judgmentalism. I mean, this is self-righteously pointing fingers. This is shifting blame. This is not examining yourself before you're quick to call out the faults of others before you look at yourself. This is the spirit of judgmentalism that the Bible has nothing of and is spoken against. But the Bible is also very clear that Christians should be discerning should distinguish between right and wrong, should stand against injustice, and so on. And all of these things that the Bible commands we do necessarily involves right judgment. It involves judging rightly. And living into this tension in Scripture is not easy. It's not easy, and it's never going to be. But it's not something that we can just throw the towel in we have to work hard at this. And listen to the words of one New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, and he, he, in this quote, I think captures why it's so important to try to do this well. He says this, he says, It is utterly disastrous to appeal for judgment when forbearance is called for or to prohibit all judgment when judgment is precisely what is needed. Both errors seriously damage the church, and usually reflect a mind that is unwilling to think its way carefully through the balance of the word of God. Both errors seriously damage the church. Both errors seriously damage. We have to try to live into this tension well. And one of the reasons why Christians need to judge well and judge rightly now Is that as Paul says in this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, he says that one day we will partake in the judgment of the world. Now now please hear me say that this doesn't mean that Christians will be laughing and pointing fingers as all the miserable sinners meet their end. No, it's more like this, somehow in a way that we don't fully understand, Paul doesn't Fully unpack it here for us, but in a way that we don't completely understand, you and I, as followers of Jesus now, we will stand with Jesus as He makes right everything that is broken and wrong in this world. It means that we will say, finally and completely, to hell with cancer, and it will be gone child abuse, poverty, loneliness and depression, hate, racism, murder, war, every injustice, every disappointment, every regret in your life and mine, death even, the ultimate enemy, go to hell, we'll say. And it will. Never to be seen again. And then... Together, we will witness the recreation of our world into what it always should have been pain gone, heartache gone, selfishness, and my inability to be who I long to be gone. And then perfect joy, perfect love, perfect wholeness in the presence of God forever and ever. and you're going to quibble in small claims court? Really? Excuse me. You're going to argue and fight with your family? With those who you'll be spending eternity with? Really? Remember, where we're headed should determine the path that we take. But, but in Corinth, they're living as if this is it. They're Lloyd Christmas, halfway across the country in the wrong direction. And honestly, most of the time, so am I. I. When I think about the beauty of our future, what I just described, when I think about that, and then I compare it to the way that I so often live day in and day out, it's not great. Here's what I've been asking myself this week. Am I letting this glorious future determine my present? Does it really make any difference for me? And if not, how can I be confident that I'm even on the right path? And that brings us to our final point this morning. If we are headed where Paul says we are, then that should totally and completely dictate the path that we should take. So what is the path that we should take? And I think here we see three things. First, we see that we can be peacemakers. We can be peacemakers. If we live in light of where we're headed, then part of the path that we're going to take to get there necessarily is going to involve peacemaking. And it should, right? I mean, think about it. Why are we even getting to go where we're headed? Why is heaven coming to earth? Why do we get to be a part of that? It is only, and I mean only, because God made peace between us and him when there was only enmity and strife. He didn't just throw his hands up in the air, but he, as the ultimate peacemaker, took the first step towards us. This is Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we live out of that. We live out of that gospel message that God didn't leave us where we were when there was this gap, but he reestablished the peace that was there before the fall. He's the ultimate peacemaker, and we live in light of that. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, and, and Paul, in his second letter to the Corinthians, the same church, he reminds them that they have a very important ministry of reconciliation, of bringing peace, of bringing peace, we are rejecting something very important when we fail to be peacemakers. So where this week can you bring peace to a difficult situation? Where can you take the initiative as a peacemaker? Maybe your marriage hasn't had a lot of peace lately. Maybe you and a coworker are at odds with one another. Or maybe there is some serious drama going down at school right now. Where can you be a peacemaker this week? Remember, these are everyday disputes we're talking about here. This is what Paul's addressing. And and Paul, he says it straight out to the Corinthians in verse seven. The first half of the verse reads, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul is saying, listen, in light of where you're headed, judging all evil with Jesus, these everyday disputes are laughably trivial. It's already a defeat for you that you think they're such a big deal. Look back with me at verse five. There's a question here that I want us to see. Paul says to the Corinthians, he said, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Can it be that there is no one wise enough among you? If you've been with us the last several weeks, then you know that the Corinthians thought they were pretty wise. And Paul speaks into that. He tells them actually true wisdom is upside down and you're really not as wise as you think you are. And so we have to catch here in verse 5 that this question is laced with sarcasm. Can it be that there is no one who is wise enough among you to settle these disputes? But I do think that Paul is pointing them and pointing us to something. You know, Christians aren't smarter than anyone else, but we do look at the world differently. In light of where we're headed, in light of what we know the destination Is we have the mind of Christ we have prayer and oh yeah we're supposed to be peacemakers because we have peace with the God of the universe who we rebelled against isn't there anyone who can resolve these disputes isn't there anyone who can be a peacemaker so when you have an issue with a Christian brother or sister go to the church first Seek godly counsel. Hopefully, prayerfully, the end result will be peace and reconciliation. But even if that's not the ending, it's actually better to be wronged. Because on the path that we're taking, we can be wronged and still flourish. That's the second thing we see here. We can be wronged and we can still flourish. I know this sounds crazy, but I didn't say it, Paul did. The end of verse 7, he asks these two questions of the Corinthians. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And I can imagine what the Corinthians' response was to this, because I know what my response was, um, because that sounds terrible, right? Humans are experts in not wanting to be wronged. And if you spend any amount of time around a young child, they are the kings of this. They have such a keen sense of justice and right and wrong, and they know when they've been wronged. There you go, somebody was wronged. And, and just like the rest of us, those young children, they know, they hate it when they've been wronged. They hate it when they've been wronged. I would bet a lot of money that everyone in this room has been hurt by another Christian. And if you haven't, just hang out a while. It'll happen. (laughs) You will be soon enough. An argument, a betrayal, a criticism, an unintentional slight, insensitivity, not noticing that you were hurting, being ignored, and so on. I've been there, both on the receiving and I'm sure, I know on the giving end. It's no fun. But what's the alternative to being wronged? and receiving that. Retaliate, seek justice on your own terms, destroying that relationship. Remember, you're going to be with that person for eternity. And meanwhile, we destroy Jesus' reputation. You you do realize, I know I have to remind myself of this, but that non-Christians are watching our lives, right? making decisions about other Christians, about church, about Jesus, based on you and me. It's better to be wronged. And this doesn't mean that we hide our dirty laundry, right? Christians are a self-selecting group of people who have raised their hand and said, I was so bad that the God of the universe had to come and die for me. We don't hide our dirty laundry, but we should be thoughtful about things like conflict with one another, knowing that non Christians are watching us. A million years from now, how much will it matter that so and so hurt your feelings or ripped you off in a business deal? I, like I know that that's a a very big deal. It's a serious matter. But will how much will it matter in a million years? Will it really matter when we get where we're going? When heaven comes to earth? If our years on this earth are all we have, then sue away. Fight and take, scratch and claw. But if there's more, then where we're heading has got to determine our path. And, and this isn't a call to absolute passivity. Christians aren't just doormats. We, we certainly don't sit back when we see others under the thumb of injustice. We don't sit back. We take action. And nor do we simply enable people to sin against us. Again, this is a civil case that Paul is talking about, not a criminal one. If someone breaks into your home, steals all your stuff, but leaves a note and says, I'm a Christian, go ahead and call the police. I mean, right? This is a civil case, not a criminal one. We aren't called as Christians to pretend like sin doesn't exist for the sake of civility. That's not what's happening here. And in fact, if you were here last week, Bill's entire message was about what we do—the church's role in discipline for those who claim to be Christians but continue to persist in sin. And in this passage, Paul he also addresses sinful behavior. At the end of verse eight and into verses nine and ten, he calls out those who are wronging and defrauding, wronging and defrauding. And this is what he writes. But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what Paul writes about sin. There are two lists that he has here. In verse 9, that's a list of of sexual sins, and we're going to be talking about those next week, the next few weeks. And verse 10, if you notice, is a list of sins that all have to do with greed, with treating others only as objects for personal gain. Defrauding and wronging others are the rotten fruits of greed. And Paul, he's very clear, even if we don't want to hear it, Judgment is coming for the one who is hurting you. If they persist in their sin, it reveals a heart far from God and they will not inherit his kingdom. And if we find ourselves somewhere on that list, well, that ought to freak us out. And we'd better repent and turn back to God. Where this week Can you set aside your rights for the sake of another? Where can you choose to lose if necessary? Where can you be wronged and still flourish? Because you are accepted in God through Jesus. Finally, if where we're headed determines our path, then we can trust the one who works in us. You know, I'll be honest. Verses 8 through 10... That I just read are overwhelming. I have broken more of those things on that list than I would care to admit. I am the one who wrongs and defrauds. I am the one who does not deserve to inherit God's kingdom. That's me. And if you're honest, aren't you in the same boat with me? I think Paul was in the boat with us, too. And I think that's why he closes with verse 11, which is just an incredible verse. And this is really just where I want to close us. Right after those lists in verses 8 through 10, Paul writes this. He says, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. I mean, it's, just, it's a short sentence, but let's just sit in that just for two seconds. And such were some of you. This is who you were. This is where you were headed. This was the path you were on. It's little, but we can't miss it. And such were some of you. It's who you were, not who you are. He goes on. He writes, but you, that's a great but, right? (laughs) But you were washed, you were sanctified, meaning that you were made whole. You were justified, which means that you were made right in the sight of God. And how were you? How were you washed and sanctified and justified? He says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen and amen. If you are a Christian, God is working in you. That means that on the journey to where we're headed, we have someone that we can trust the one who is actively working in us, making us new again, and preparing us for our glorious future when heaven comes to earth and all is made new once again. What else could we possibly need? Will you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you for not leaving us where we were, but coming after us, pursuing us, in the person of Jesus Christ and dying on the cross so that we might be washed, so that we might be sanctified, so that we might be justified. Thank you, God. May we live into those realities and always let where we're headed determine the path that we take. Amen.